Well, there was a, a story from a politician, about a politician who was running for office in the western part of the United States. Part of his district contained a large Native American reservation, and so as any good politician would do, uh, this candidate for office went onto the reservation to speak at the town hall. After going through his normal stump speech, the politician was working the crowd. He, he felt the energy going, and he says, I promise better educational opportunities for Native Americans. And the crowd went wild, shouting, Hoya, Hoya! The politician didn't know what the word meant, but they were smiling at him, so he figured that things were going well, and he figured that they were kind of like an amen in a church service, so he kept on speaking. I promise that I will work to get a casino on the reservation. And the crowd stood up, hoya, hoya. Finally, the politician knew that he had the crowd right where he wanted them, and he closed his speech by saying, I promise more jobs for Native Americans. At this point, the crowd stood up and was screaming, hoya, hoya, hoya. Well, after the event, the politician, riding that high of that campaign event, asked, spoke to um, the town chief or the, the tribal chief, and as they were walking out on the, on the farm or this land where there was a, a bunch of cattle, he, he, he said, Chief, can I go look to the, the cows? I grew up on a farm. I'd like to go see them. And the chief replied, sure, not a problem. But be careful not to step in the Hoya. <laughs> see, this story's made up. It's a politi politician's story. But it does show that the truth of a word matters. And how someone handles that truth matters just as much. What we see all throughout the Bible, every book of the Bible, is an emphasis on truth. Truth through God's word is why we are here. It's why we study the Bible. And it's why we know about God at all in the first place. But not everyone who comes to a church or joins a church or serves in a church, or teaches in a church, is a true believer in Christ any more than standing in a garage makes one a car. Unfortunately, there are false teachers and people inside churches who teach something contrary to the clear meaning of Scripture. These people are dangerous, and the Bible here especially gives us a warning of what the church is to do. Now, I want to be clear. I am not taking jabs at anyone who is here or who has ever been here. As far as I can tell, there has never been a false teacher, at least since I've been here. And there's not a person who I know who has ever been a member of this church or is one now or a visitor who is a false teacher. So I'm not speaking, I'm not being subtle. I'm not trying to, to get around anything to say that I'm speaking about anybody in particular. What I'm saying is this is that Paul gives a warning to churches that this could very well happen to any church. That the, that the danger of false teachers and false teaching and doctrine that runs contrary to the gospel, it is so dangerous for churches and it is so easily brought in. And this is what I want us to see. The warning that Paul gives is not as much as who is already here or who has left, because this doesn't apply, but rather who may come in. 
The Ephesian church had to deal with bad teaching and bad doctrine, and you cannot be ready to remove those things if you're not prepared before. The time to get our theology and doctrine right is not when we're in the middle of a crisis. The time to get our theology and doctrine right is when things are good so that when things get bad and bad stuff starts to seep in and people are grasping for anything that gives them hope, you know the truth. You know what's right. See, I want to make sure that we are on guard for false teaching which is anything that deviates from God's word and anything specifically that messes with the gospel, that adds to or subtracts from it. So my first point, what we find in the text today, is that some will depart from the faith. Just like today, many Christians in the early church were convinced that they were living in the last days. It's not surprising because Jesus did often talk about his return. So the hope was that Jesus would come quickly. Christians were being persecuted and they were seen as a threat to the stability of the government and they were seen as troublemakers. For most Christians, you could worship however you want as long as you just keep it to yourself. And as we know, that the Christian faith is impossible to keep to oneself. We, we cannot be obedient believers and not spread the message of the gospel. This is what we see in the Bible. So you can understand why people who are being persecuted and, and going through intense suffering would be focused on the second coming of Christ. They hadn't had time to build this immense systematic theology that we have today, because the Bible hadn't been completed So all they knew was Jesus and his promised return, that he would come back one day to give them comfort, ultimate comfort, and right all the wrongs. In 2 Timothy, Paul even talks about the last days and the false teaching that would come during this time. It's it's almost like the people who get wrapped up in the end time so much that they can predict when Jesus is coming back, and they say, well, wars and rumors of wars, forgetting the fact that there have always been that, that that's never stopped. And why do we focus so much on the return of Jesus, though? It's important. It's a doctrinal issue. Why do we, why do we anticipate that so much? Why are we so hopeful for that? That's just it. We are desperately in need of hope. Anything that gives us a taste of hope or comfort, we are clinging to dear life to those things. We want hope. We should be excited about it. We want to be released from tragedy. But here's what happens. When a Christian, as an individual, or a group of Christians as a church, is at a low point cracks in the foundation come. And anyone who comes in and promises to fill those cracks, to fix the foundation, to fix those things that are causing trouble, people gravitate towards. And we have to be careful because it's really easy for false teaching to sneak in at our weakest point. Is it any wonder why so many TV preachers make millions millions of dollars, mostly off the back of people who don't have much at all. It's generally not the super wealthy that are funding these guys and ladies. 
is people who send in their last bit of money. Clinging to hope, hoping that this will solve their woes. With the persecution going on around these young Christians in the church in Ephesus, can we blame them for clinging to hope? See, con men and criminals can spot weak people from a mile away. And by the way, I don't mean weak as in terms of who you are. I'm saying in terms of where you may be at. Because I've seen some of the strongest people, some of the the people with the strongest will be brought down to nothing. And people will take advantage of that. Criminals and crooks. And we see this from, from people who create businesses to steal money and people steal people's identity. We, we've also seen this done, unfortunately, done in the name of Jesus. Supposed pastors convince their audience that they have some kind of special power that if they just send in their seed, they'll send them miracle spring water or they'll send a prayer cloth and Somehow it'll cure you of all your ills. And people who trust in the Lord are convinced by these liars, by these false prophets, by these agents of Satan to send in their money. Lives are ruined, bank accounts empty, bitterness takes over. This is spiritual abuse. These liars talk a good game. They read from the Bible and they say things that sound like truth. And people think, well, wait, these guys on TV, he's reading from the Word. This is what it says. See, Paul recognized that some of those in the church in Ephesus claimed to follow Christ but weren't really believers. They used the Bible for personal gain, but they weren't concerned at all about obeying what God says and glorifying Him. This makes us uncomfortable. Who are we to question someone's proclamation of faith? And you think back for, wait, 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 back up for a second, Ryan. You've talked a lot about how our salvation, our, our salvation is secure. And you say that Jesus, um, that no one could snatch us out of Jesus' hand. He said that. And why are you saying now that there are people who have claimed to follow Christ but aren't really Christians? I'm going to say this clearly. Someone who is truly saved by the grace and power of God can never lose their salvation. Plain and clear. You didn't earn it, so you can't lose it. And the fact is that if we could lose our salvation, we would have lost it 10,000 times already. It is a gift of God Not by our works, so that we can't boast about it. So, but we see here that it says some will depart from the faith. How do we make that work? How how do we make sense of this? These are people who claim to be Christians, but never were. These were people who served in the church. They were members. They may have led worship. They may have preached. They may have led in authority. But it turns out that they were what we call apostates. Now, apostasy is a big deal for the church uh, because apostates are very, very dangerous. So what is an apostate? Well, let me tell you what it's not. First, apostates are not just non-Christian. The the entire world at that point outside of the faith would become apostates, and that doesn't fit the definition, so we know that. Second, and this is I want to be very clear on this, an apostate is not just a struggling Christian. 
That is not what apostasy is. Many of us have gone through or are going through right now a spiritual crisis where we're questioning everything, where we're going back and the the fancy word that people use today is deconstruction, where they start to deconstruct their faith and, and unfortunately too many people go too far down to where they have no faith at all. But I'm not talking about people who genuinely are trying to figure out what they believe and why they believe it. People who ask genuine questions. That's not apostasy by any means. An apostate is someone who is part of the visible church, someone who has professed faith in Christ. They seem to be a believer, but then they later reject and fight against the purposes of God. They seem by all accounts to be a faithful Christian, but then they reject the gospel. They hate the gospel. And here's where a message could cause people to get upset. I would argue that apostates never lost a faith. They were never Christians to begin with. Because I believe that a person who is saved is forever protected by the power of the Spirit. Yes, we have ups and downs. Yes, we struggle. Yes, we question. But a person who belongs to Jesus is never let go. And I've used this analogy and I'll use it again. Someone could come to our next potluck. And they could come and sit down next to us, and we give them a plate with all the food that we can pile up on there, as good Baptists do. And it's, I mean, it's a foot tall. And all they do is just pick and nibble. Take a little bite of this, a little bite of that. And then they get up and leave with the plate still full of food. There's not one person here who would say that they feasted on what we offered. They tasted. They sampled. It, if you didn't know their plate, it would look like they're eating with us. It would look like that they are feasting with all of us. But in reality, they were just taking bites. And when the time came to look at everybody's clear plate, theirs was still full. They didn't feast. And this is what apostates do. They say the right words, they, they do the right things, they, they, they serve in the right way, they are part of the fellowship, at least it looks like it. But you can see why they're so dangerous. Because they seek to wreck you and me. But because God is sovereign, he even uses sinful things, as we've seen throughout the, the entire Bible and throughout our lives. God uses sinful things to accomplish his purposes, and this is what's happening with apostates. Now, that's crazy. We think, how can God use apostasy to bring himself glory? Well, he uses them, those who get a taste of his grace through the church, but reject him as a way to warn the church, the true followers of Christ. Maybe you've wondered what Paul meant when he said in Philippians 2 that we should work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We, we know we're not saved by works, but our works show that we're truly saved. But they also protect us from falling prey to the trap of apostasy. See, I've got a friend um, who I would play golf with often when I actually played golf. And every time I would play with him, I knew the question that would come up about a third or fourth hole. I don't know if I'm really a Christian. I've done X, Y, and Z. I, 
I just don't know. I'm not sure. I, I, I don't know. I, I've, I've done too many bad things. And this was a member of our church, a person who professed faith in Christ. And every single time after that, I would say, brother, the fact that you're even asking this question is an evidence to me that you're a true follower of Christ, as best as I can tell. Because someone who's not is not going to care. But the fact that this bothers you, the fact that you're worried, the fact that you're wondering that you want to be a child of God, and you're worried that you're not, that shows me that you're in a good, good place. And I would say the same thing for anybody here. If you are worried about your salvation, you're in a good place. It's a good sign Work through your doubts with fear and trembling. You don't earn God's favor that way, but it does help you to recognize your security. And it protects you from the influences of those who want to, you to reject your faith. So apostates not only reject their faith, but they want to bring people down with them. Look at what Paul says about them. They devote themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. They are insincere and their consciences are seared. The idea here, other versions would maybe tell you that it's seared with a hot iron. The Greek word here is kaustereazo, which is the same word we use to cauterize something. Which means to burn the skin or the flesh when there's a wound in order to seal it up, to prevent more blood loss and infections. You meet people like this. Maybe, maybe they're not apostates, but they were people who simply shut off their conscience. And we wonder, how could someone do something so bad to someone else? How could these people that we read about in books be so callous that they could hurt people or kill people or harm children? How could anyone do that? Well, the answer is they've completely closed off their conscience. We've heard this, that it's unconscionable, that they have no conscience. People could hurt people without remorse. If you haven't encountered anybody like this, be grateful. But we've seen this in movies, haven't we? You, you know the story. A good guy somehow goes to the bad part or the bad side, turning his back on everything that he once knew and as truth. And once he's on that bad side, it's as if every relationship he once had is meaningless he doesn't care about hurting anybody because he wants what he wants more than anything else. This is not a Bible character so much as it is Darth Vader. But Darth Vader's not found in Scripture, but the idea is still there. That, that people who had been part of the truth, been part of what was right and true and, and good, can turn their back on that and go in the opposite direction and fight against it. And there were false teachers coming into the church in Ephesus who were coming in and causing all sorts of problems for the church. Now, earlier, I mentioned preachers on TV, and I just do that because they're, they're there. They're in our faith. Nine out of ten times, or if not more, of the preachers that we see on TV are part of the prosperity gospel, the health, wealth, and prosperity, the name it, claim it crew. And this is probably the best example of what was happening in Ephesus of people distorting the gospel, people making, uh, using Jesus' name for their own prophets. And look again at verse 3. This is what Paul was saying. 
They forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now, that's kind of a cultural thing that was happening then that we may not quite grasp. We don't have a problem telling people to not get married. In fact, I think in Christian circles, it's often a push to go get married and sometimes even um, too young, I've seen. So we don't really get the connection. And the second thing that Paul says is that these false teachers were requiring people to abstain from certain foods. We don't do that either. Maybe the closest thing would be churches that require abstinence from alcohol. So what do we do with these statements then? He said they're forbidding marriage and they're forbidding eating certain foods. See, these false teachers had somehow come to think that avoiding marriage was the only way or the best way to obtain some kind of holiness. If people could fully devote themselves to the Lord, they could serve him more. Without a spouse and without children, you can fully devote your life to the work of the Lord. And here is the danger that is so incredibly close to being absolutely true. Paul says it. Paul says, I wish that all of you could remain single so that you could devote yourself to the work of the Lord. But he said, I know that most of you can't. And do you see how false teachers will take something that's good and true? God bless you if you are single and you can devote yourself to the work of the Lord. If you, if you do not have children, culture looks at you sometimes as not being as good I'm telling you, you're just as good. You're just as worthy. You're just as important to the kingdom of God as anyone else. I promise you. And the truth is that, that when, when, when I say things like that, people get freaked out, right? How, how dare you talk about a single person? No. You have worth and you have value and you have tons of effort that goes into serving the, the Lord. And if someone were to come to me and say, I want to be single and I want to go and serve the Lord in a foreign mission field, God bless you and we will pray for you and love you and support you every step of the way. Wonderful. Except if I said you have to be single. You have to be child. Do you see the problem here? You're taking something that is good and they're distorting it into making it something that goes directly against the gospel. It's just close enough Likewise, Paul said that these teachers were restricting certain foods. Again, in light of what the Old Testament says, this sounds true. This sounds right. Stay away from certain foods. You may have heard people say to you, you're a hypocrite because you're eating lobster. You're wearing a 50-50 polycotton blend t-shirt. Do you know you're going against what God says? And in the Old Testament, it does prohibit that. Don't eat shellfish and don't mix fabrics. We see that. The teachers in the Ephesian church that were coming in and spreading false truth or false doctrine were coming in and saying, these things that applied for those people at that time now are required of you as well. Paul sees the error of these teachers And says that God created marriage and intimacy and food to be received with thanksgiving by those who know the truth. Eat what you want. You want lobster? Go for it. You want to wear Under Armour t-shirts? Go for it. You want bacon? Eat as much as you can handle. 
as long as you give God the blessing and give thanks for what he's given to you, you have freedom as Christians, that you're not bound to those standards. Those were for a certain people of a certain time for a certain reason. And Paul says, these false teachers have come in and tried to tie us back to the law. Have you seen that so many times in the New Testament? Where teachers came into the church and tried to shackle Christians to the law. Rather than using the law as a mirror, as a tutor, as something that pushes us to Christ, people were going backwards and saying, yeah, Jesus, we love you, but we also need this. See, all of this has brought us to the problem with these false teachers. They were doing the same thing that false teachers do today. They were adding to the gospel. They were adding to it. See, I believe with all my heart, and I preach it, and I teach it, and I will die for it, that Jesus is the only way to salvation and forgiveness. All sin deserves to be punished, and God promised that all sin will be punished, and our debt will be paid. But he's also told us that his people will be spared. Not because of our own good works, but because of what Jesus has done on the cross, The only way that we can be saved from our sin and the punishment that awaits us, the punishment that we deserve, is by asking God for forgiveness and believing in Jesus for salvation. Anything that adds to that story, anything that adds to the message of the gospel beyond that is perversion. It's not the gospel. The gospel plus anything else is not the gospel anymore. These false teachers in the Ephesian church were saying that people must remain unmarried, must be celibate, and they must avoid certain foods. This was not an issue of obedience. If you want to do those things, you are free to do those things. That was not the issue. It was an addition to the work that Jesus has already accomplished. Anytime someone says to us, that a Christian must do something. The question is, is it an act of obedience or are you adding to the message of the gospel? Today there are people who say that you must be baptized or that you must not drink alcohol. What they're doing is adding to the grace of salvation. You must do this extra thing if you want to be saved. This is not true teaching. And far more pervasive than that are the gospel twisters who contort the gospel. They mangle it and twist the gospel into something for their own benefit. God loves all of his children. And if God is our father, then how could any father want anything less than the best for his children? So of course God wants us all to be millionaires. Of course God wants us all to have a private jet. Of course God wants us to have mansions and and full bank accounts. Of course. And it sounds good. But that's not what the gospel says, is it? Paul says their consciences have been seared and they have been branded with the mark of demons. They have tasted the goodness of God and rejected it. You've heard this before. Hebrews 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again 
the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those who's, for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if, thorns, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. And its end is to be burned. Have you ever wondered what this is referring to? You read through Hebrews and you're wondering what this is, is talking about. Listen, it does not say that anyone is beyond the saving reach of, of the gospel. I believe that wholeheartedly. It's why I preach the gospel. It's why we share the gospel. I believe that there is not a person alive right now who is beyond the saving reach of the gospel. But the truth is, sometimes God gives people what they want. C.S. Lewis wrote this, there are two kinds of people, those who say to God, your will be done, and those to whom God says, all right, then have it your way. Sometimes God says, okay, have it your way. It's frightening. I know the sin that resides in my heart, and just as much as you know the sin that resides in yours. And it is when I'm being honest, when I'm being truthful, yes, I want my way. I want my way all the time. I want it done exactly how I want it, in the way that I want it, when I want it. I, I want that all the time. But back against the wall, telling the truth, knowing my own sin, probably the most frightening words that someone can hear is, okay, have it your way. For God to say, okay, here. Your choice. So you see this happening in our own lives, and you see how these things were happening in the church 1900 years ago, and we think, what, what hope is there? It's easy just to become so frustrated with the local church, and any church for that matter, that we just kind of give up. We have a me and Jesus time. You don't want to be fooled, and there, there is some some frightening aspects of it to think that there, there may be false teachers that come into our fellowship, that maybe uh, will come and try to wreak havoc in our church. And I could say this, you cannot live life being scared of everything, right? We, we can't be looking around every corner for boogeymen. So what's the solution then? It says to be watchful. It says that we need to be prepared. It says that we need to be ready because there are false teachers that are seeking to harm the church, that are seeking to preach another gospel, and they want to come into churches and cause problems. So, but we're not supposed to be scared. What do we do then? You must know, use the word must, you should know, understand, love, and live out the gospel. Know, understand, love, and live out the gospel. If you're unprepared for battle, you will lose. Every time we meet together, my aim is that you leave with a better understanding of who Jesus is and how the gospel applies to you, your life. And this is what I preach. This is what I live for. It's what I try to proclaim. I'm always asking myself when I'm preparing a sermon, when I'm working through a text, I'm asking myself two questions. First, what problems do I have that I'm seeing in this passage? Right? Every, every part we, we see here, it's a little bit easier that there are some who depart from the faith. Problem. All throughout the Bible, we see humanity's problems. That the Bible is a story, a, a giant story of God working in and through sinful people. So there's always going to be problems that we see in the text. 
What are those things that prevent me from being fully devoted to Christ? And then second, how does the gospel answer these? What are the problems in the text and in my life? And how does the gospel answer the text and my life? I don't preach the gospel because it's all that I know. I know a little bit about other things. I preach the gospel because it gives me the answer that plagues me. I preach the gospel because it gives me life and power and strength to keep going. Paul closes these five verses with a word to the Ephesian church about how everything that God has created is good. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So why do I preach the gospel every week? Why are we so uh, gospel-centered, gospel-something? We're, we're, we are gospel people uh, because of the problems that come into our lives. And here, this is what we see with sin. Sin takes something good, it mangles it, it distorts it, and makes it into something that's not good anymore. Do we not see this with Intimacy. A gift from God in order to be fruitful and multiply, but also to have a connection with someone, your spouse, that you have with no one else. And what does sin do? It distorts it. That life is about your own pleasure. Life is about what we want out of it. Make, make whatever you want out of your own life. Do whatever it is that you want as long as it makes you happy, as long as it brings you some kind of pleasure. And it takes a gift from God and distorts it and makes it into something hideous. Sin takes God's created design and makes a mess of it. What God made good, we desecrate. What God designed for our pleasure becomes our idol. False teachers in Ephesus had told Christians to avoid marriage and certain foods. And what they saw was an effect of sin, so instead of going to the root cause, they wanted to treat the effect. And it's kind of like someone with a a gunshot wound and going and putting a Band-Aid over top of it. Yeah, it'll hide it for a little bit. It's not going to do any good. It, it, it may make people feel good on the outside because they're not looking at, at, at this blood loss coming out. They're not looking at someone's insides. They're, hey, they just see a Band-Aid. All's good. It's not solving the problem, though. The root of the problem for the Ephesians was not marriage. and It was not food. It was their sin. It's the same problem that we face today. More and more, I can't, I, I, I'm sure you see this too. Maybe I'm just late to the game. More and more I see that how the same problems that I see in Scripture are the same problems that I deal with every day in my own life. We're the same people who followed after the apostates in Ephesus. We encounter difficulties in our lives, in our jobs, and in our churches with our children, and we want to get rid of those problems. We, we don't want to solve it. We just want to make them go away. It would be so nice to have children, right, parents, that, that are just quiet for a little bit. And we can make them quiet. We can, we, we can throw them in a closet or, or, or kick them outside of the house, and we can, we can do those things, and maybe things will get quiet, but it doesn't solve the root of the problem, does it? 
It doesn't. It, it's not going after the root cause. It's so much easier, though. We want to follow the, the teachers that tell us, do this and don't do that, and in God's eyes, you'll be okay. And I've said it before. Having a list of rules is so, so much easier than following after what the Bible says. If I could give you a hundred lists of rules, you could do those. But what the Bible demands is so much more than that. What, what God deserves and demands is so much more than just a, a list of rules to follow and to check off. He says, I want everything about you. I don't want just your, your blind obedience. Yeah, that's, that's important. Obedience is important. I want your heart. I want your devotion. I don't want you to follow rules. I want you to do those things out of a, a, of a spring that comes from inside of you that goes out and wants and desires to follow those rules because it brings me glory. That's what we're hearing. See, I'm okay to follow some rules, but I'm not okay to die to myself. I'm not okay with letting go of my plans and my desires and what I want. I'm not okay with that. It's hard. Do you see the effect of sin, though? If you are the center of the universe, if I'm the center of the universe, what, what does it matter? You live once, you seek out pleasure, you seek out a great life, and this is the one chance you get. But do you see how sin, what it does is, it makes people think that way. It takes everything that it touches and becomes a distorted picture of what's real, of what God intends things to be. And this is what false teaching does. They say, well, wait, we don't, we're not dealing with false teaching here. You're right. Be grateful to God that we don't have false teaching. But you know what? It resides in each and every one of us. The desire to add to or to subtract from the gospel. It's in every single one of us. Because when we take our eyes off of the gospel, when we take our eyes off of what Christ has done for us and our sins that are covered past, present, and future and put our eyes even just a slight percentage off to the side, what happens? It's no longer the true gospel. Anything that adds to or takes away from the gospel is to be tossed out, ignored, and rejected. Why? Because the gospel is the most important thing, and anything that departs from the truth in it is found from deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. The gospel is everything to us. It is why we exist. It is why we are part of a church. It's why we sing. It's why we preach and hear preaching and read the text. Because of the work in the gospel that's happened in us. And church... We are grateful that this has not happened, but beware, protect the truth, protect God's word, protect the gospel, because there are fierce wolves that are ready and ready to come in and attack. And you don't think that at a time when we're at a low point, maybe in the history of this church, you don't think that it's ready to come in? I promise you, many of us have, have been struggling for, for quite a while and trying to figure out, God, what are you teaching us in these difficult days? What, what is it that you want us to learn? And I'm seeing this, I'm seeing we've still got to be ready. 
We've still got to be ready. We've got to know the word so that we can defend it and say, no, we're not letting that get a foothold in this church. We're not letting false teachers come in and kill this place. We're going to cling to the gospel. And we're going to stand with Jesus. And we're going to proclaim his truth to all those around us, no matter what happens. Would you pray with me?